Jetty folk take care of Jetty folk. And if you ever have a chance to lick a coyote on the nose, I would really recommend it as an outdoor activity. You should have seen that fish run. And I was like, man, first off, don't ever buy a gun at Stop and Go. And if you do, don't buy it for 20 <laughs> You create the most corrosive environment you possibly can and then put mechanical equipment in. You're like a superstar because everybody who's on the jetties watching comes down and wants to take a picture with your fish. Like they want to hold the fish and act like they caught it. And then they like are clapping and everything whenever you reel the fish in. All right, welcome to the podcast. We're in Corpus Christi, Texas, um, at the Heart Research Institute, which is part of Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and uh, have the pleasure of sitting in front of Dr. Greg's, Greg Stunts. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks for doing this. It, it took a little while for, for us to get our schedules together, but um, I'm glad to uh, finally be able to do this and... Uh, Tell the listeners, let the listeners know a little bit about you and your research. So, Yeah, well, I'm glad we finally got to do this and get a chance to tell everyone about some of the projects we're working on. Of course, some of the ones uh, CCA is directly involved with, so we're happy about that. And, of course, you know, we're here in the Center for Sportfish Science and Conservation. And so that's a research arm at the Heart Research Institute. And, uh, of course, CCA was uh, really uh, important in founding that center and uh, getting us going. Of course, we have a lot of collaborative partnerships still ongoing with you guys from direct research grants as well as uh, scholarship recipients in the lab and, and also some of your interns from the internship program with the Texas Parks and Wildlife. So it's really great deal. So before we get into the details on Sports Fish Science and Conservation Center, um, Talk about yourself a little bit. Where where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I'm a Texas boy. I grew up in Bernie, Texas, just north of San Antonio for folks that don't know where that is. And so I uh, got my degrees from uh, University of Texas in San Antonio and then my master's and PhD in fisheries from College Station at Texas A&M. Did you grow up fishing and uh, in the outdoors? or? I grew up fishing and, and hunting and loving the outdoors, and so I was trying to figure out a way to do that for a career so so I got fortunate and ended up doing that and, and literally I was uh, uh, trying to decide if I was going to medical school or pursuing a career in the uh, um, outdoors and I was looking through uh, Texas Fish and Game magazine and I read about a scholarship that the CCA had and I was thinking man can you really you can go to school and do that <laughs> well, sure enough I looked into it a little bit more this was after my, my bachelor's degree and I ended up going to College Station. That's where the where it was, and sure enough, I got the scholarship. And so that was a really great thing. That was the first scholarship that you guys did, first graduate scholarship. And uh, what's interesting is now my students have that scholarship, so it's kind of come full circle. Yeah. So we're real proud of that. So um, so the the CCA has done great with that program, and um, it's really working out well. So so you actually made a conscious decision, like I want to become. A marine scientist and I, I want to do research on I don't know if maybe the Texas coast but do, do marine research like you mm -hmm. you made up your mind that that's something that you wanted to do yeah yeah that was um you know I, I started fishing in saltwater in the late 90s I'd never 
uh, I'd always always fish freshwater, you know, growing up in the hill country, and fell in love with it and wanted to somehow make that my career. And so, and I, I know you're interested in this species. And at the time, I was trying to figure out a project for my thesis, and flounder were a big deal back then. It was you know very liberal bag limits, and the size limit was very small. And so I spent a lot of time with Texas Parks and Wildlife in Palacios working on southern flounder and trying to figure out how fast they grow, when do they mature and reproduce and that sort of thing. So some of the current regulations we have in the flounder fishery are from some of that research. And so that's really where I sort of, I cut my teeth in the marine realm. And so fortunately, flounder's doing a lot better. We keep uh, being more conservative with their um, population. And so that's been a good thing. They're starting to come back, I think. So we're happy to see that. Yeah, yeah. So I... So you shouldn't have brought up flounder because that's a dangerous <laughs> yeah. subject to bring yeah. up with me. So a um, a a sexually mature male, a male can get sexually mature within twelve months, fourteen months, sixteen months. Because this has always been a, a question in my mind: when for males, at what point in time do they contribute to? the spawning population. Yeah, well, the interesting thing on flounders, they only live about four or five years. Very rarely they get larger than that, but that's very unusual. And so the males uh, get reproductively active pretty early, about a year and a half. Um, but the males rarely get in what we would have keeper size. They stay pretty small. They stay below generally 14 inches for the most part, except some really old um, large ones, and uh, which are unusual. So most of the fish we're catching and keeping are females. It's about a 10 to 1 ratio. But um, the, the issue with flounder uh, males and females, is they don't have a large reproductive capacity. So they're only producing about 30,000 eggs per year if you're a female versus, you know, 20 or 30 million if you're a redfish. So, you know, it's a, a big difference in their ability to um, reproduce. And mm-hmm. part of that has probably to do with their life cycle in that they're a flat fish. They don't have a lot of room in the, the way their physiology or morphology is designed to support a lot of egg masses like trout or redfish. So, so they... Um, uh, just can't reproduce quite as fast. Then it'd be hard for them to swim around because they don't have that air bladder well, to help exactly. them keep them afloat. Ex- exactly. So they can't exactly. stay weighted down to the So, to the exactly. So, the males uh, 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 typically are much smaller, and uh, and they're getting reproductively active fairly early, but um, they're just uh, not, not the ability to produce a whole lot. Um. I heard something interesting, and this isn't published work. This is just kind of a side project at one of the um, scientist down at uh, Palacios was Joel Anderson was working mm-hmm. on. Um, probably doesn't even want me saying this, but I'm gonna say it anyways. He suspects that um, a large population of the males that migrate stay offshore and then continue migrating, go around Panhandle, Florida, and end up on the Atlantic coast just from RNA samples that they have that they've been looking oh, at. Oh, really? Well, that's that's interesting. I, I haven't heard the migration part of that. You know, back when I was doing this work, uh, we suspected that, that you know, th- so your listeners know flounder are one of the species that are estuary independent. They live in the estuary, but they go offshore, at least near shore to spawn and then come back. A lot of species like red drum don't do that. They, they leave and once they're out there, they don't generally come back. <clears throat> So we suspected that maybe the males just stay out there and the larger, older ones and, you know, waiting for the females as they come out to spawn. 
but I haven't heard the migration part, but we did some trawling out there at the time. And it's about a 10 to 1 ratio in the bays. There's 10 females for every male, which mm-hmm. is kind of unusual as well. But offshore, we suspected, oh, well, maybe it'll be more of the 50-50 mix. But we didn't see that. It was still that 10 to 1 ratio. So maybe they are moving off. You know, um, um, that's that's the first time I've heard that. But yeah, and, explain things. And um, we'd always, I'd always heard when I was working with Flounder that, you know, the bays are male limited. We, whenever we had uh, spawning natural spawning difficulties and we we want the fish to spawn in the tanks and we weren't seeing male contributions we suspected it's because we didn't have enough males in the tanks and we started Mm -hmm. just overloading the males and we'd have four males or five males to every female and then we started to see um, some fertilized spawns as a result of that so i think there is something to having a lot of males around a female um, makes a difference yeah particularly in aquaculture See, we shouldn't have even yeah. brought that up. <laughs> okay, so um, you um, you were you you got into A and M through a that was for your masters with with the internship. Yeah, that was for my masters. That's for your masters, and then you went mm-hmm. straight on to PhD. And I just continued on for my PhD through College Station, but I ended up doing a lot of work in Galveston, so spending a lot of time there once my research started and finished with the academic portion of my degree. And I uh, did a lot of work on redfish and looking at their nursery habitat uh, in areas. We It was well known that redfish, little redfish, like seagrass meadows, but there's a heck of a lot of redfish in Galveston and over to Louisiana, obviously, where you don't have all that seagrass. So we were trying to identify what, what the little ones needed, which it turns out it's marsh or the Spartina marsh, that emergent vegetation, that edge we all like to fish, is sort of the critical habitat when seagrass isn't around. And that's that's for both food and shelter i mean it's all encompassing both food and shelter yep okay mm-hmm. and uh, so after you finished your dissertation and did your defense did you already have something lined up or like what was that process for you like going from um being in school to a career yeah so um i was fortunate at the time during my dissertation when i was in galveston that i linked up there was a cooperative program with the national marine fishery service and so i was uh doing a project they were interested in while I was in graduate school with the ideas that you you move into a position, which I did, and I worked for those guys for a while doing a variety of uh, estuarine-type fisheries work. And then uh, that was in Galveston, and then this position here at A&M Corpus Christi opened up just as a regular faculty professor in 2002, and um, I took that position, and I've been here ever since. Ever since, the uh, Heart Research Institute was just beginning um, the donation uh, that cr- founded the Institute had just um, happened shortly before I arrived. And then as things evolved, um, I ended up here now working full-time at the Heart Research Institute. I think I left here in early 2003. And then uh, right after I left, I heard I had heard about Dr. Stunts. Dr. Yeah. And I was like, man, I never got to meet that guy. Well, Ed Hart was was a, a great philanthropist, really cared about the ocean and the marine environment, and so he uh, gave the university this $46 million endowment to start a marine program to study the marine life in general, or the, the Gulf of Mexico in general. And so that was a, a huge donation at the time, one of the largest um, ever. And so I had seen that, you know, applying for the position and 
saw that a lot of stuff was happening here at the university and it's just been really great. I mean, the, the, we're growing so fast. In fact, sometimes we wonder if it's growing too fast, but, <laughs> but that's a good problem to have. And of course the Institute is, is doing great. And so, um, I lead the fisheries and ocean health component of the, uh, Institute, but we have a lot of other stuff going on here as well. We have attorneys involved um, with the Institute. We have economists as well as general scientists like me, all working on various aspects of the Gulf of Mexico. You walk down the hall and see some of the name tags on the doors, and you're like, whoa, some heavy hitters in this (laughs) building for sure. (laughs) So we've able to, an endowment like that obviously raises eyebrows, but also draws the attention of some really good people. So, you know, really the, the, you're kind of defined um, by, by your people and, and we have some really great people here at the Institute. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about the center for, for a little bit. Um, what, is the, what is the Center for Sports, Fish, Science, and Conservation? And um, what are the, some of the research projects that are going on now? Yeah, well, how we got founded is that several of us, including our director, Larry McKinney, and I, um, and of course, Larry was former um, head of fisheries for Parks and Wildlife before he joined uh, directing our institute. And we've been talking for a long time and also meeting with CCA leadership that we just don't have a formal research center for sport fisheries. And so uh, we, even though we've been doing this sort of work for some time, it was never really formalized. And so we, we saw the need that was there. And uh, working with the CCA and the university and other groups, we were able to form a center that's now dedicated just to sport fish research. And man, it has just really taken off. And um, we sort of hit on an area that had a lot of need. Of course, fishing is a lot of folks' passion. And so um, we're able to work and uh, do things uh, specifically related to fisheries and, and sport fisheries. And so it's been really successful. And... You you work you you do a lot with um, tracking fish, tagging and tracking. Um, you look at migration movements. Talk about some of the species you work with, and then specifically some of the projects around those species. Yeah, yeah. So we um, we have working on these projects. We have about twenty people. So I have gotten so busy with the sport fish center and the institute. I don't do as much professing anymore as I used to as a professor. So my job now is pretty much a hundred percent research, and so this team of 20 people is um, there's about four or five graduate students working on their master's or dissertations and the rest are, are staff of master's level folks and, and postdocs, which are individuals that have just gotten their PhD as well as staff PhD scientists. And we have at any time, you know, 10 to 15 different projects. And I know I've given a talk to a lot of your members and they probably heard of different projects uh, going on, but some of the the big ones that we have are Cedar Bayou, of course. Everyone's always interested in that, and that was a big one. We've been worked on the the short story there with Cedar Bayou is that uh, it was just quite phenomenal. We couldn't have anticipated how much of an impact that pass would have had. It's just quite incredible um, what we saw. The highest densities of little redfish anywhere we've seen along the whole Texas coast. So to give your listeners an idea, during the spawning season for redfish, Cedar Bayou delivers um, 10 little tiny red drum for every square yard of habitat that's out there. That's pretty incredible. So Wow. Every, every three foot by three foot, there's 10, 10 little bitty little redfish bitty red coming in. So tell the story so, uh, about sampling before and after. 
Yeah, so what Cedar Bayou allowed us to do was we rarely have a benchmark or a baseline of of information beforehand. So we were able to go up there two years before knowing that it was going to be opened, and essentially we found zero redfish. There was none there. Of course, big ones would eventually migrate up there, but in terms of nursery potential, it just didn't exist there. There was no little redfish. And the pass couldn't have been opened at a more opportune time. It was right in fall, right in September, right as they began spawning. And literally the next week, we began seeing little pinky-sized redfish where they didn't exist before. And, of course, we were excited. And we were about two to four per square meter, per square yard, roughly. Is it, and that was great. We were really excited about that because that's high. And then the next year, you know, we doubled that. And then the year after that, we're at 10 per square meter. So, you know, it just keeps getting better and better. And so um, they just don't get very far from a pass, the little ones. And and they need those seagrasses and marshes and oyster reef. And all that's right there in Cedar Bayou. So it's pretty incredible. So do you think the reason um, the density is increasing because the habitat is getting better as a result of the bayou opening? Or do you... What do you think is uh, attributing that could yeah. be attributed to? Yeah, well, it's always had the great habitat. I mean, there's been lush seagrass and oyster and marsh there, but the sort of what we call life history of these species is they are spawned in the Gulf and then they come into the estuaries that are nursery. Well, they don't get very far from an inlet. So those areas were essentially inaccessible. So when you opened it, one, the flow, that was a big deal. But the habitats were kind of already there. Now, we've seen sort of a renourishment of those habitats, and they're, they're, they look really good, but they were generally already there. Now, keep in mind, it delivered redfish, um, but also crabs and shrimp, um, you know, major prey source for hooping cranes, which is an endangered species there. So it, it isn't just the red drum. It was the entire ecosystem that we are seeing is, you know, really just uh, – began to uh, flourish literally overnight as as um, that flow began. So we're really happy about that. You know, we have, you know, you asked to talk about a tracking program. Um, we have what we call the TEXAN, which is stands for the Texas Acoustic Array Network. And I'm sure some of your listeners have heard in the past, you know, we have listening stations from Port Mansfield all the way up to, to almost Port O'Connor, but all around the Cedar Bayou area tracking big fish. And so we were able to put tags in adult red drum, and these tags um, send out a, a sound about every minute. And if they're within the range of our listening device, we can know real-time where these fish are going. So we've wired up all the inlets, including Cedar Bayou. So not only are little ones coming in, we were watching these red drum in the fall and really the spring beforehand just move around Mesquite Bay, which is the bay right where Cedar Bayou um, flows into. And then all of a sudden in fall, the ones that were of adult um, breeding size went right out the bayou and, and you see oh, them no. go and not coming back. You know, they're going to join their spawning stock. So the, the point of all that is not only is it delivering little redfish, uh, the, the big redfish are, are using it as a means of uh, egress to get out. And so it's really completing the life cycle for that species. So have you ever cool. found a, 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 a mature red come back close enough to, to, um, to be picked up? But it was actually all just offshore spawning. I mean, if you had some, yeah, we'll pick we'll pick them up again on the receivers that are near the inlet, near the mouth of the inlet. Uh-huh. But in general, uh, most of the time, once they go out, they're they're done. They're, they're done. They're they're gone. Mm-hmm. Always wondered if if um, if those mature reds come back to the same pass or the, the same near shore waters to do their spawning, or if they just or if they just come in near shore and 
wherever they are, that's that's where they're going to spawn. I'm always wondering if they've tracked back to the same spawning grounds. Yeah, that that's an interesting question, and and we have had that question, and in, in fact looked into that. Um, Jay Rooker's a, a colleague of mine at A&M Galveston, and he and I had a project several years ago. And that was to look exactly what you're doing. The the fish have otoliths, which are ear stones and ear bones in in basically their their brain area. And every day they lay a new layer on this bone like skins on an onion, but they happen to incorporate the ambient water chemistry with it. So it's kind of like a natural tag of where it's been, assuming the water chemistry difference among different areas. So we're able to go back to the very core of that otolith, the very central region of this marble-like structure, and that represents the the young when it was tiny, little bitty thing. And we're able to match up that chemistry with the, the um, ambient water chemistry. And essentially what it showed is exactly what you're saying. They do exhibit some type of homing. So fish off of Matagorda Bay look like fish from Matagorda Bay. And fish off of Lower Laguna Madre in Port Mansfield look like fish from Port Mansfield. Of course, there's some mixing on the edges that occur there. Mm-hmm. But in general... Um, the your, the bays locally contribute to the population. And of course, that's important because that means that fish, what we manage in Galveston Bay influences Galveston Bay and so on throughout the coast. So yeah. it's a it's a good um, indication that just like the, the way Texas Parks and Wildlife, and they do a great job of managing our fish, manage it on a bay system. That's probably the way we should be doing it because individual bays are contributing locally to their own population. It's fascinating that they that they do that. Have you ever seen the otolith on a um, freshwater drum on a Gasper Goose? Oh yeah, yeah. They got the some big, L yeah, in yeah. It. It's a lucky oh yeah. Charm. You put it in your pocket. Yeah. So oh you know. yeah. The the otoliths are well known to have uh, <laughs> magical qualities. A lot of people carry them around. Of course, uh, keep them for good luck and things. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was fascinated with that as a kid. Um, it took a hammer and a big flathead screwdriver to get it out, but uh, yeah, we'd always tinker around with those. Yeah, environmental CD-ROMs is what we call them. We use them to age the fish, but they also are very powerful in terms of the information they collect, and we can exploit that as scientists to answer all sorts of questions. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what are some other research-focused... Uh, well, Cedar Bayou is a big one of interest to your readers. Um, probably uh, another one is this uh, whole artificial reef and nearshore artificial reefs. Of course, the CCA and you guys, as well as Parks and Wildlife, are very... Uh, much into creating access, particularly in state waters, but also reefing in federal waters too. But in this case, state waters. So we have access to primarily red snapper, which obviously is a really key fishery in the Gulf, uh, in in close to shore. And so we've been working on a reef off of Corpus Christi called uh, MU775, or, or it's really called the Corpus Christi Nearshore Reef. How far off is that one? It's, it's just inside state waters. Okay. And it's, if you... From if people know where Aransas Pass or Port Aransas is, and then Packery Channel and Corpus, if you do a triangle out to nine miles, that's about where it would be. So it's just inside the state boundaries, but it's about twelve or thirteen miles from a particular from port to get yeah. to get there. So close enough for small boats. Um, maybe some have seen the pictures going around. They're catching huge snapper out there. Our surveys show a lot of snapper. They've also sunk a whole variety of concrete culverts, reef pyramids, and ships there that um, are really uh, drawing in the marine life. And so we're working in that reef as well as the new reef that you guys are putting in near Port O'Connor, one very similar um, called the Keeping It Wild Reef. And you guys have 
partnered with you and Shell and a bunch of great groups to do all kind of good work up there. And similar to Cedar Bayou, in these areas we're able to get out and do the baseline work ahead of time, then go out after its reef for a period of time to really demonstrate the impact. And these, uh, a question we've always had in artificial reefs has been, do they just attract fish or do they actually produce fish? In, in fact, one of our CCA scholarship recipients that's here, his name is Matt Strike, and maybe you guys can, can talk to him at some point. His dissertation focused on this artificial reef, and he clearly showed production coming from these reefs, and scientifically that was very important because it showed that these structures are in fact contributing back to the population and not just congregating fish that are already there, in fact, potentially making them easier to catch. So that's a very good thing. And so it was same story as Cedar Bayou. We went out there beforehand, which was just sort of a muddy, sandy bottom. And we might have caught a few hardheads and maybe a croaker or two and some blue crabs, basically just your pretty void of life. And as soon as the pyramids went in, we began catching all kinds of more desirable species. Of course, a lot of red snapper, a lot of grouper, believe it or not. And then it's close enough to shore that you get a lot of things like red drum and black drum out there as well. So what's special about um, the nearshore reef near Corpus Christi is that we saw the little bitty ones coming in and we were able just to follow them follow all them. the way until they're into the keeper size. And, you know, we're happy to say it's a very popular spot, particularly this time of year in the winter, um, to uh, easily capture a red snapper in state waters. So. How far... So the, the snapper are now staying on this reef and spawning, mm -hmm. presumably. How far off the reef do you think those juveniles are going? Because they like that mud, sandy bottom. So the small ones, are they just on the on the outskirts of the reef, or do you, do you think they're dispersing? Yeah, and, and that's another really good point we don't have a, a firm handle on. So little bitty snapper, you know, ones that are brand new, just newly hatched, they occur everywhere just open over um, – just open mud bottom. And of course, that was a big concern when the shrimping pressure was so high because they were a major bycatch in shrimp trawls. The shrimpers would get a, a lot of these little bitty snapper. Well, then as they begin to grow and get a couple inches long, they like something we call low relief habitat, which is just not a big reef or an artificial reef, but maybe if you imagine, you know, some remnant shell rubble from old oyster reefs and that kind of thing. And they're really attracted to that. And probably because as many of your anglers will know snapper are just so darn aggressive they exclude these little fish from the, the more prime habitats so but they do need some type of structure so we've been experimenting with creating low relief what we call nursery habitat near the more desirable more reef-like habitat like the reef pyramids or maybe oil and gas platforms so then as the snapper reach about six months to a year that's when they actually recruit to what we would think of more as artificial reef. So we think by creating this lower leaf habitat nearby, you sort of enhance the, the recruitment of little ones that are ready to recruit to the um, adult population as they grow and into those habitats. And so that's kind of what we see. That's what we saw with 775 is these young of the year recruit to it. And we can follow those age classes all the way through the fishery. So the snapper that are on, on these near shore reefs, the adults that is, once they're on a reef, do you see them moving much from one location to another? Are you, are you, have you been able to track that, or do they Not, just seem yeah. just to home in on that? Yeah, they're very sight-attached is what we call it. So we're able to uh, 
insert our acoustic tags that we were talking about earlier. So our Texan array also occurs on these um, artificial reefs. In fact, um, uh, Kesley Gibson's a PhD student with us. We just put out what we call a VPS array, but it's a fine scale positioning array. So we have 20 of these listening devices and we can know where these snapper are at any particular time. And so the whole idea is, for example, do they like culverts better than pyramids or do they like areas? Maybe we could have, we put, you know, 600 pyramids out there. Could we have put 300 and then maybe put 300 somewhere else? And so we're trying to refine our um, reefing science essentially. But in general, what it shows, um, just the not the positioning arrays, but our other just listening, is that, the, for example, the tag life is about three years on these fish, and the tags die on the reef. You know, wow. they go out with the fish staying there. So what we generally see is they pretty much stay put. Um, when you have storms or maybe just some seasonal movement, they might move to the next structure, or they kind of come back and forth. But in general, they don't go very far for years at a time. One of the um, big topics surrounding snapper is mortality associated with catch and release. So you've been working on something uh, to help mitigate that. It seems to show some promise. So why don't you let us know what that is and how, yes. how that kind of works? So as anyone that snapper fishes will tell you, you know, the recreational anglers are not a, in a great shape in that fishery. And we've been really restricted down to just a few short days but the problem with snappers, anyone knows, and why they're so fun to catch is they bite very well. And so we have this big problem that in that fishery, the discards or the fish that we're required to release um, can be as much as the actual directed catch that you keep during the regular season. And in fact, when, when these reef fish that are coming from very deep, hundreds of feet, you know, 100, 200 feet, um, they suffer from something we scientifically know as barotrauma. But your listeners, any divers will know it's the same thing as the bends that are down there with a lot of compressed gases in their system. And as they come up to the surface, just like a balloon, if you were to take it down, gets compressed. When it comes back up, it expands. And that causes um, a, a problems. And in fact, it results in very high release mortality. And so we've been experimenting with ways to reduce that because no conservation-minded angler obviously likes to release a dead fish. And so if there was something we could do to alleviate that barotrauma, that's a good thing. So in the past, probably some of your listeners are familiar with venting, where um, you stick a needle in the fish and let those gases come out. And in fact, if it's done properly, venting does very well. We've done experiments in hyperbaric chambers in the lab under very controlled conditions, but not everybody knows the proper way to vent a fish. And, and sticking a needle in a fish obviously has some risk associated <laughs> with that. So, so we, um, we don't necessarily recommend that, but we've been experimenting with these new devices. And it's kind of a play on words, but they're called sequelizers. And essentially what they are is if um, your listeners are familiar with the boga grip, they look very similar. And they clip on the fish's lip, and they're reusable. And... Um, with a weighted, they're weighted, or you can weight them, and essentially you send the fish back to the bottom, but they have a pressure-sensitive valve in it, and when it reaches your prescribed depth, for example, you could tune in 100 or 150 feet, it opens up and then releases the fish at depth. So basically what you've done is just you've recompressed that fish, and what we've shown is that it's really quite remarkable. Um, if you don't um, and this is at certain shallow depths, they don't suffer from this as much, but 
let's say at 100, 180 feet where almost all the fish have pretty severe barotrauma, if you don't do it, the fish almost surely dies. We have almost 100% mortality. But if you sequelize them or dis- rapidly recompress the fish and to send them to the bottom, you almost have 100% survivorship. So that's really, you know, you don't need much statistics yeah, to, no. <laughs> to tell you that that works. And in fact, believe it or not, vinning works just as well. But um, uh, you just have to learn how to do it properly. And so um, we call that method the pop and drop method. <laughs> but yeah. what's, it, what's uh, also an issue is that Predators such as barracuda and especially dolphin have learned that if you come up to a, a boat that's fishing, it's an easy meal. And so by just dropping the fish back in after venting, um, they suffer high um, predation mortality yeah. versus the barotrauma mortality. <clears throat> so it's kind of like a double double whammy on the fish. <laughs> if they don't get the bends, they get eaten by a dolphin. When you descend them, um, you know, it's a lot of gear. It's a weight, and the descender device is about half the size of a boga grip. And so the, the dolphin and other predators don't really like that so much. So they kind of stay away from them. It allows you to get back down to depth. And uh, folks can log on to our, our web page if they just go to look up sportfish research. It'll pull it right up. And you can see some videos and, and how-to to use these sequelizers. They're, they're really great devices. They cost 50 bucks. And the scale of an offshore trip, that's relatively inexpensive. And they're reusable. And so um, they're a good way for anglers to uh, be very conservation-minded when releasing fish. How does somebody go about purchasing one of those that- they're available now at most tackle shops. They're available online. Um, okay. Some young kids out of Florida <clears throat> developed this, and so they were really creative at an iCast um, show a couple of years ago. They won best in show for this device, and so people have really caught on. There's there's about a dozen different um, release devices, but hands down, the se- these sequelizers are the best. Okay. So um, another thing you're working with Snapper is the uh, iSnapper app. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little briefing on that one? Well, uh, not to since your podcast, you know, isn't that long, not to get into the <laughs> snapper fiasco, which uh is is certainly an ordeal. But one of the biggest problems that we have um in that fishery, given the way that it's managed, unlike the state, is that uh we don't know how many fish recreational anglers catch. And that's a big problem because that fishery is managed based upon how much biomass is removed from the water. And so not knowing that, um, the federal government has to make um, assumptions about how many fish are caught. And that involves doing creel surveys, which can be pretty good, or phone interviews um, by cold calling people, essentially. And some other ways that may not be nearly as effective or refined or especially accurate. And so uh, we thought that there's probably a better way to do that. And we developed an iPhone app where anglers could enter their catch and then called it iSnapper. And now because of the controversial management of um, Red Snapper, every state along the Gulf is sort of developing their own methods to gauge recreational catch. And so we partnered with the Texas Parks and Wildlife where iSnapper um, is uh, the method for uh, entering your, your catch for Red Snapper. And so we're encouraging any anglers this season coming up, and we've been doing it for the past two seasons, to use the free app and enter your catch. And this is, becomes very important. I mean, you're really determining, you know, your your season links and the ability to collect good data and allowing um, with the whole intent that the anglers will have more access at the end of this if we can get better catch data. And so iSnapper's been real successful. It takes about two minutes to enter your catch for the day. And so it's a fun 
tool to get at some of these fisheries questions we have. Yeah, and you made the point. I think it's important for for people to know that it's um, the data that they enter is going to be used um, to help manage the fishery, and we basically need that recreational data to manage the fishery, and we're lacking in that. So this season, like you said, um, download the app onto your phones, and um, if you go out and catch snapper, put the data in because it's going to go to good use. I remember a project you worked on several years ago now. It was around uh, catch and release mortality with speckled trout. Yeah. And you guys did a um, a study where y'all caught trout, put them in cages, monitored their um, survival over a period of time. Talk about that. Let us know what the catch and release mortality is for trout. Yeah, well, the you're exactly right. The punchline there is 10%. 90% of your fish survives. So <laughs> we switched it from the, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, mortality study to the survival study. And so that was one of the first projects that, that I had worked with with the CCA. And if, if some of your listeners will recall at the time, we were talking about putting in a 25-inch uh, upper slot limit for that fishery where you could only keep one per day. And most suggested that we were releasing a dead fish because, as you know, stringer a trout behind you as you're fishing and you get back to the boat and they all are kind of dying or dead. And most realize that, that um, uh, you know, that may not be a good management if those fish didn't survive. And well, we did the study and put them in, in cages, like you were saying, caught a lot, thousands of fish, and we basically couldn't kill the fish. <laughs> you know, it, they, they do very, very well in catch and release. And there's two caveats with that. One, it, it, what drives the, the mortality is where that fish is hooked. If it's hooked deep, that's almost a certain death sentence. They'll, they, they would live for a day or two, but they almost certainly died um, within 48 hours. Or if, if they had a torn gill or there was, you know, obviously um, um, if you had a hook down in your lungs, you wouldn't do so well either. Right. <laughs> and so a torn gill was also, but, but the interesting thing is that of all those thousands of fish that we caught, about 10% of those were hooked in what we would call those mortal locations. But hooked in the mouth, even hooked in the eye, hooked externally, those fish just, we, we, they do just fine. You have trouble um, killing those. So anyway, we, but anyway, so the, the, of course we got a lot of criticism after that first day that, oh yeah, you held them in cages. They didn't have to deal with dolphin and predators and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, um, we, shortly after that technology came along all this acoustic technology that we've been talking about and so we finally had the magic bullets (laughs) and that was these acoustic tags so we could catch fish under normal recreational circumstances insert insert this acoustic tag and then let the fish go and they're the whims of mother nature and it turns out same story these fish do great we hear back from well over 70 80 percent of our fish we did we did a uh uh, of course, once you release these fish, you may or may not hear from them. You know, so hearing back from eighty percent, there's it's it's at least that high, if not higher. We worked with tournaments. Um, tournament mortality started off in the seven only seventy percent survival. You know, thirty percent, which wasn't near as good as just regular catch and release. But you got to remember, these fish have been put in a live well. They've gone to a weigh station, and so you know they're heavily handled. And still, only thirty percent of them are dying. A lot of people ask me, does bait type matter? Bait type, hook type. None of that matters. It's all where where they're hooked. And so um, the other interesting story of that that we find um, is tells you how much our fishery is recycled. So many of those fish that we tagged were caught two times. So they were caught, reported to us, released, and caught again. And all of them on their third time being caught 
um, met the fillet knife. <laughs> so we don't know the, the we don't know how many times they could be recycled, but we know at least they can be captured three times. And so you know that also tells you uh, in in that study, 22% of our fish that were acoust- acoustically tagged were captured again. So you know at least a quarter of our fish are probably going through this catch and release cycle. And you are able to track how far the fish moved as well so didn't you have some that moved just yeah so all these 40 miles yeah yeah we thought um they didn't move that much that was the general and interestingly enough many taggy stagging studies have shown that you, you tag one you release it this is conventional tags that you have to catch the fish again and someone's got to report it they would be caught again right near the same spot so a logical scientists would conclude it didn't move at all in fact a lot of our fish that i was just telling you about the 22 percent we're caught in the exact t- the tide gauge bar in Baffin. Many of your eagles will be familiar. Popular spot. We we had two that were released and recaptured on the tide gauge bar. So you would assume that they didn't move at all. Um, in fact, David Rousey. Many of your listeners will recognize him. He's very very uh, one of the top guides in in the area and been a big contributor with our research program. He caught two of those and said, "Hey, your fish didn't move." Well, we went back and looked at the acoustic data, and they'd moved 70 miles in the meantime. <laughs> they'd been down in Port Mansfield. They'd come up through the land cut. They had moved all over the place. So, um, the we did the work in the surf to look at tide runners. That was a big question. It turns out that phenomenon doesn't really exist. The surf trout stay put, and never did we have a bay trout leave to go out to go to the surf and. The surf trout only came in the passes, never deep into the bays. Well, anyway, some of those fish are moving 12 miles a day. So there wow. tells you why they, that, you know, the fish are there one day and you go back and they're they're gone the next. But interestingly enough, they're caught many times right on the same grass bed that we tagged them. So there is some type of homing or maybe it's a feeding area they come to or something like that. That's amazing. You know, you mentioned that tournament mortality Um Probably we saw the very similar thing with um, fish that were brought into the hatchery with yeah. with fishing tournaments. Um, and you're right, they get caught, they get a lot of times netted, they get put in a live well. They're riding in the boat all day, bouncing around inside that live well, and then they get taken out and they get put in a basket, and then they get held up for a picture, and then they either be released or, or go, in our case, go into a hauling tank, transferred to a hatchery, netted again, put into a a fish holding tank, quarantine tank, and all that stress and all that going on, you, ours were probably closer to 60, 40 or 60, 65, 35, somewhere in there, but a large percentage of them survived throughout all of that stress. And the ones that didn't were, like you said, the ones that were deeply hooked, injured gill. We'd also find ones that were just really heavily handed, like if the, if a lot of slime coat was wiped off. Yeah. Or if the, you could see where they had held the fish, and if they had the fish and their fingers were way up in the gills, and then the other, like I said, there's usually a hand around the, the caudal fin. About three days after the fish are in the tanks, those handprints show up because they yes. have they don't regenerate the slime right where that the, they were yeah. they were pressured, and so you, clear as day you could see where they where they were held and a lot of times those like i said those that had the hands way up in the gills just didn't didn't yeah as well we saw the same thing in our tanks and what was interesting is it say well well to your point i mean i guess you can imagine so catching a fish taking a quick photo and releasing it or just releasing it quickly they'll do just fine if they can handle all that level of, of stress and transportation and so what we saw um was that the ones in the tank same thing just 
fin- clear finger uh, prints on the the uh, um, or handprints on the fish. But as soon as those fish started eating, they wouldn't eat right away. They took them a couple mm-hmm. of days, and we'd put them some live bait. And uh, then they would, st- as soon as they started feeding again, though, they just, it was, um, you know, they, they r- did really well. And I guess as an avid fisherman, probably one of the most interesting things of the project was watching these fish feed. And so, you know, you put a live pinfish in there, and it was quite amazing how fast you know for for anglers that think they are working their bait too fast i don't think that's possible <laughs> if the fish wants it i mean it was pretty quite amazing to watch how quickly these uh fish can capture their prey i've enjoyed i enjoyed the same thing like watching how a redfish a redfish is just like a, a bulldozer coming up to the bait and he keeps yeah. moving in the same direction that he's feeding but the trout would go up to the bait and as soon as it grabbed it it's doing a 180 it's doing yeah. a really quick head turn yeah, it's just you think about that when you're out in the bay fishing and how the bite's a little bit different for those fish, and that's a large yeah, you, reason you why. almost don't see it happening. And in contrast, you know, we've done some catch and release work with redfish and movement patterns of them. I would have never suspected this, but redfish move a lot less than trout. <laughs> in fact, they're a little bit of homebodies. They kind of stick around the same general area, believe it or not. And now over time, of course, they move, eventually move and that sort of thing. But for short periods of time, meaning, you know, three or four months, they're kind of staying on the same spot as compared to trout that are much move much more and we i don't think we would ever have suspected that uh, going into the study there is is there anything that you haven't um had an opportunity to to research that really piques your interest you know what are some things that you you want to do but you hadn't had had the time to get around to yeah well there's there's a, a lot of work of course you know tarpon seem to be coming back or we're hearing a lot more about tarpon lately so tarpon's high on our list uh we uh have a lot more work to do offshore. So, you know, you think about creating artificial reef. Well, pretty much the species that come to mind, of course, is red snapper. But you have king mackerel, cobia, ling, um, that are using these. As you get further offshore, it turns to amberjack and tunas and those sort of things, dolphin fish. We don't know much about what we call these loosely aggregated species. They use these habitats, but they don't show up in our surveys because they're not right there on the reef and that sort of thing. And so understanding uh, what those species are doing is would, is very important. And, of course, some of our tagging technology uh, allows us to do that. And, of course, you know, sharks are one of the ones as well that we can put in satellite tags, which are even more sophisticated tags than acoustics, which uh, allows us to have real-time positioning anywhere on the globe where those fish might go. In fact, with our sharks, we see some quite incredible movement, particularly with our mako sharks. That's a good segue. So I don't just jump yeah. into jump into the sharks. Of course, everyone wants to hear about <laughs> sharks, <laughs> you know. And we just sort of uh, got interested in sharks. Of course, sharks uh, are suffering globally from removal of the water for their fins, primarily for shark fin soup. And you know, two hundred fifty thousand sharks a day removed from the water. And unlike trout and redfish that have high reproductive capacity, even flounder, you know, have thirty thousand off you know eggs. Sharks have about ten, you know, on average, or maybe less for some species. And so uh, they just don't have the capacity to reproduce. It's kind of like the elephants of the ocean. You just can't have industrialized fishing on species like that and expect them to recover. But more importantly, they play such an important role in ecosystems. I, You guys, through your Building Conservation Trust program, are creating all sorts of habitat, oyster reef and marshes, and which is a great thing. But most people don't realize without healthy shark populations, you're 
um, restoration programs can't be successful because as it turns out, um, sharks, one of their favorite food to eat um, are rays. And when you remove that pressure on the rays, of course, the rays overpopulate because the sharks aren't keeping them down. And, you know, guess what the favorite food of rays is? It happens to be oysters. oysters. (laughs) So then you have this overabundance of rays because you've depleted your sharks and they come through and then wipe out your shellfish populations. And that's in the Chesapeake Bay, for example, and other places around the world. We've seen these cascading effects like that where your best restoration programs aren't successful because the ecosystem's not in balance. So... That's one of the reasons we care about sharks, other than they're just kind of cool and charismatic animals to study. They they are sort of these great balance keepers of the ocean. And so we uh, begin to wonder what's the status of sharks in our waters. And the good thing is the Gulf in general is pretty good. I mean, it's not near as good as it could be. We've seen big declines in large sharks and others, but we have plentiful shark populations. And so we kind of like to keep it that way. And so uh, putting in our tags and these animals allows to look at where they're moving and breeding. A good story, Harvey Weil is a shark that you can follow on our webpage. We tagged him almost to the date today in February of last year, just off of Port Aransas. And he spent the summer down in the Caribbean. And today, if you go into our shark tracker, he's sitting right on top of where he is tagged today. So <laughs> he came home. He made quite a bit of journey. In fact, he wow. was caught once along the way. Um, a party boat out of Port Aransas caught him um, just a couple of days after we tagged him, and they fortunately they released him, and he's doing just fine. What is he? Did you say what he? He's a mako. Mako. Okay. A mako. Yeah. Okay. And he had a, a a tag with some bright yellow writing on it. It's pretty obvious on their dorsal fin, the the tag, and so the deckhands noticed that, and they released the shark and. And so a part of the problem we have with sharks when we tag them is catching them again. <laughs> so we release them, and five minutes later, we're, we're catching them. We work, <laughs> we work with Eric Oslin. So I know you're going to have a shark episode coming up. We're talking to Billy Sandifer, these guys catching these massive sharks from the beach. He caught a huge mako from the beach, 11 feet. We named him Lazarus because he was caught on Easter last year. And about two hours later, um, Eric Oslin's caught him again. Oh wow! <laughs> so he came back for a second time, but um, but yeah. So they're they're the tagging process doesn't affect them at all. And so um, your listeners can follow these sharks. It's actually quite a bit of fun to see where these sharks are going, and pretty much they all report real routinely to see where their their fins have to break the surface of the water, and it makes a high speed connection. Unlike our GPS and our boats, that just get information from a satellite these sharks send information up to the satellite and then back down to us so it's pretty cool technology and that's and they just uh, to get to that site just go to sportfish center or is that yeah if sportfishresearch.org okay. one word sportfishresearch.org or if you just type in sportfish research just google that it'll pull it right up yeah you talked about the uh, the the race in uh, Chesapeake Bay I, I worked um, in Gloucester Point off the York River at an oyster hatchery and uh I'd go fishing right there. That's right where the York would dump into the Chesapeake Bay, and I'd go when when the river wasn't just ripping through there. I'd go wade fishing out there. And um, this is one of my first experiences with just mass schools of cow nose rays. But I was I was out there trying to catch flounder, and uh, all of a sudden I see what I thought it was a stingray going by me, another one behind me, and all around me. And then they're coming up to the surface where they're, I don't know what they're doing, right at, where they're flapping right on the surface. But I was a little scared. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Almost had an accident and um, I got out of the water because I didn't know what was going on because it was all kind of new to me. And then um, talking to some folks at at the uh, Marine Science Institute there, um, 
explain to me what was going on. And um, I'd always wondered, do you, do you know why that population in that bay or in that area, the sharks had declined? Was it overfishing or was was there something else? Yeah, it's primarily overfishing. So what, uh, particularly where you're, the area you're talking about and in the Gulf of Mexico, um, we did a, a really neat study where we went back and, and the Port Aransas has a deep sea rodeo and all the states along the Gulf have something similar that's gone back to the 20s in some cases. And we looked at what the winning sharks look like historically through old pictures and photos and newspaper accounts. And what we clearly saw is that whether you're on the East Coast or on the Gulf Coast, the great sharks, tigers, bulls, hammerheads, have have been in great decline where they used to win the tournaments. You know, you'd expect that the sharks would keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually you'd catch the biggest because of technology and things. You Your sharks would flatten out because you you've caught the biggest ones that exist because a lot of money is paid for the biggest mm-hmm. species. Well, what we saw was in fact, that very thing is technology increased. The sharks got bigger and bigger, but not only did they flatten out, they completely crashed. And now instead of a tiger shark winning the tournament, it'll be smaller species like black tips or other species have, have replaced them. So what has happened is some of their particularly hammerheads, some of their favorite prey species are rays. And so hammerheads are, are one of the few that have been hit pretty hard in terms of um, overfishing. And so uh, when you release that predation pressure, you get an overabundance yeah. of the rays that start depleting your shellfish. Yeah, once you lose those 20- or 30-year-old fish, you don't – that's it. There's no more of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, you it, have to wait it another – takes 20 or 30, 20 years, or 30 for, years for them the, to get the back. The good news is they're they're coming back. I mean, at least in Texas, they're, they're – you know – you, your listeners would be surprised the size of sharks that we catch from the dry sand. <laughs> and, you know, you're fishing from the beach and catching sharks that could easily take you out. I mean, 11-footers that, you know, would be nothing. But, you know, uh, we're just – shark bites are extremely rare. Um, two fatalities ever in recorded history in Texas and only less than 50 bites. So, you know, that's that's pretty low considering, you know, 3,500 people on Texas highways die every year. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, you don't, the parks does a great job of managing our fisheries. We're not on the menu and they're after their normal prey source. When they bite us, it's probably a mistake and once in a while kind of thing. So it's just not an issue. They're, they're there. They're just, uh, you look at Port Aransas and any weekend in the summer with the thousands of people in the water, it's just, you know, not shark bites are a non-issue pretty much. People need to worry about the cuts on their legs. And, exactly. And There's eat, a eating oysters in the summer. and a lot of other things that are going to get you before a shark will. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, I don't have any more questions. Do you have anything else you want to um, bring up? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. We covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, we can uh, – uh, maybe we can do a future podcast. I'd love for your listeners to hear from some of our students, particularly some of the CCA scholarship recipients and the – work that they're doing we're really proud of that here and i know they are and they're really happy to work with you guys and you know that that's creates you know fundamental changes to their career when you don't have to worry so much about going down to mcdonald's to afford your tuition yeah <laughs> and yeah. it allows them to focus and do their science full time so um you know we're really happy um, with that program and it's been a real success and so hearing the kind of work that they're working on is would be a great thing. Sometimes. I think definitely so. would get Matt and maybe some of the other folks in here. That would be, yeah, that'd be interesting. And uh, he did a good job. I saw his talk at the American Fisheries Society meeting uh, a month ago. And yeah, it was really intriguing. Yeah, so I think there's some a lot to cover there. So, all right. Well, thanks for your time.
All right. Well, thanks for coming down. That was fun. I hope everyone can enjoy what the research we got going on.